ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. When you're doing something you love is your smartest possible brain. So sometimes these red threads just help you thrive. Sometimes, though, they help you solve your problems. For the last 10 years, I've been intrigued by the role that love might play at work. Are you more inclined to go the extra mile for that work colleague who you just love working with? And do you focus on the right things for the work you love doing? Hello, I'm Lisa Leong. You may know Marcus Buckingham for his data-driven work in co-creating The Strengths Finder and his best-selling books. He's now turned his mind to matters of the heart in his new book, Love and Work, which is his most powerful and vulnerable work to date. What's his take on love at work? Love and work. So I was once in a corporate setting. I use the word compassion uh, in that meeting and I heard this guffawing down the line and somebody said, Lisa Leong, next you'll be asking us to donate goats. So there was a bit of pushback and I'm wondering what do you say to people who think that love and work is like oil and water, that love has no space at work, Marcus? Well, often love doesn't have much of a space at work. There are many companies, there are many public sector organizations that if they're not exploitative of people, they're barely transactional. And there are certainly many organizations and indeed probably many um, educational institutions as well that don't really see a place for love in work or in contribution. But I've spent the last 25 years being blessed with having an opportunity to interview people that are really, really good at what they do. Everybody from teachers to doctors to salespeople to housekeepers in hotels. You look at anybody, you interview anybody who's really, really good at what they do. And if you ask a few open-ended questions and just keep quiet, pretty soon they're going to talk about something, some activity, some moments, some situations in their work that they love. And they won't use the word joy or, or meaning or purpose. They'll use the word love. I love it when, I love it when. And everybody's got a different sort of set of things they love about their work. But when you listen to people that are excellent at what they do, really excellent at what they do, they don't shy away from the word love. Loveless excellence is an oxymoron. Loveless creativity is an oxymoron. Loveless service is an oxymoron. So my hope with the book Love and Work was, or even juxtaposing those words, Lisa, was let's get, let's get that word rehabilitated because it's the first thing you reach for when you're born and it's the last thing you cling onto before you die. And if your work has none of it, then you will be and will all be the lesser for it. So I use a term, uh, it's a marketing term, category of one, and I saw that you made a passing reference to category of one in your book, but you have a much more poetic concept actually, and it's got to do with an ancient Norse word. Marcus, please explain. <laughs> I'm just fascinated, maybe in a way all of us are fascinated by why are we different from the people we grew up closest to? You are different from your brother and your sister. In the academic world, that's called individual different psychology. But the ancient Norse grappled with the same question, like, why are two siblings so different? And there, as you say, it's sort of a lovely, poetic notion, was that each person is born with a weird. Not that you are weird, <laughs> although, 
although you may be, but it's not an adjective. It's not W-E-I-R-D. It's a noun. It's spelt W-Y-R-D. And it's something that you have. It's like a daimon or a spirit or an essence. And when you're born, it's there. And mothers and fathers and close relatives, we see you as having something in you at birth. And we should, of course, take a growth mindset. Um, there's no question we can all grow more synaptic connections during the course of our life, undoubtedly. But, but that doesn't actually mean that you can just rewire your brain. The ancient Norse were onto something. Every single human, when they're born, has, like my son, right before he, he was born, we lost his heartbeat, and then we got it back, and then we lost his heartbeat, and then we got it back, which was not a good thing. So they rushed us into the delivery room, and and when he was being born, the doctor said to me, um, she said, uh, come look at this. I've never seen this before, which, you know, as a new parent, you're like, I don't know that I want to hear those words. And, and he was born holding on tightly to his umbilical cord and he was squeezing his umbilical cord, fainting, waking up, squeezing it again, fainting, waking up. And that I have to say is kind of how he goes through life. He's 23 <laughs> now, 22 now. So he's grown and developed, but, but that's kind of how he goes through life. He's intense, <laughs> comatose, intense, <laughs> comatose. Oh, wow. And we've all got our own version of that with our own kids or with our own you know, nephews or nieces or whatever. And so that's what the weird is. It's, it's the quintessence of the human that's born that seems to be there within the human when they're born. One thing I found really helpful in your book was the red thread and how that helps us start to tease out our weird and the things that we love. Can you go through that exercise for us and the questions that we can ask ourselves, Marcus? What no one ever tells you at school, even if you're studying psychology at university, you don't get told this, but it's, it's completely true as we study people that are really good at what they do. What they never tell you is that activities themselves are energetic. An activity itself has love in it for some people. And for other people, it doesn't. It's very, and it's not vague. I, mean, I remember interviewing housekeepers at Walt Disney World, the very best housekeepers. And they would say things like, well, one of them would say, I love, I love creating lines in every room. I vacuum myself out of a room. And every room is an opportunity to, to create lines in a room. And I, I mean, this was 20 years ago now, but I would turn to the eight other housekeepers sitting around the table. We were doing a focus group to learn more about them because Disney wanted to hire more like them. Um, and I remember turning to the other eight and going, oh, do you like that? So you all like that. Do you like all really organized? And they looked at me like with a blank stare going, I don't, I don't make lines in rooms. And I, I, I went, well, what do you love about what you do? And someone else said, um, I like sitting on the toilet or lying in the tub or lying on the, in fact, the last thing I'll do is lie on the bed and turn on the ceiling fan. And I'm like, why would you do that? And she went, because that's the first thing a guest does after a long day out in the parks. They come back in, they flop down in the bed and they'll turn on the fan. And if the dust comes off the top of the fan, the guest might think the rest of the room is as dirty as the top of the fan. I just loved this, seeing the room from a guest perspective. Now there's rules that say I shouldn't lie on the bed, but I just love seeing the room from the guest perspective. So activities like that have energy in them. And if you study people that are 
average in a job. What you find in any job is that any job done averagely is homogenous. Every one of those housekeepers had to clean 34 rooms. Average is homogenous. But excellence in any job is unique. You find these weird idiosyncratic activities the best people love. And, and so if for all of us, if we wanted to have more love in our lives, and I don't mean just relational love, I mean love for the specific activities that we do. And by the way, you don't need 100%. People sometimes say, well, if you find a job you love, you'll never have to work a day in your life again. But there's no data on that at all. In fact, the data that we have on love at work is that 20% is a pretty good threshold. If you find 20% mm. of the activities in your job that you love, at that level of sort of visceral granularity, of I love lying on the bed and turning on the ceiling fan. If 20% of those, you're in a good spot. There's a bunch of Mayo Clinic research on doctors and nurses, for example, that suggests 20%, but every day, not like, not like 27 days of lovelessness and then one really love-filled day. It's like every day. So the, the idea that I tried to present in the book was every one of us is the wisest person in our world in terms of what activities we love. But if you can think about a day as not just 24 hours, it's actually thousands and thousands of different activities, moments, situations, an email here, a call there, a conversation here, an interaction. That's what a day is. Thousands of what I call threads. It's like a day is a fabric. And in the fabric of the day is thousands of different threads, thousands of different activities, moments, situations. Some of the threads are neutral. They're emotionally rather neutral. They're black, they're white, they're green, they're gray, whatever. Some of the threads though are red threads. They're activities that you love. That's what a red thread is, an activity that you love. And I'll use that word love. For no good reason, by the way, other than you are you. And, and so in the book, I was trying to say, here are some clues for you. Not to find the perfect job you love, because you'll never find that job. And we don't find that in the company of excellence ever. So instead, put that aside. Don't find a job you love. Find the love in what you do. Find the love in what you do. That's different and doable. And so here are three clues. I was like, hey, before you do an activity, you find yourself positively anticipating it. You you're, not, you're not procrastinating it. You're actually trying to get to it. Second clue, when you're doing it, time flies by. It feels like you've been doing it for five minutes, but you look up, it's an hour. There's an inverse relationship between love and time. Uh, Mike Chekshamahai, the positive psychologist, called this flow. We've, some of us have heard of that notion, flow. And the, and the third clue is that when you're doing it, it just clicks. It feels almost like you've done it before. There's no steps. It's just, it, and, and when you're done, you kind of want to do it again. It's that vibe of, I want to get back into me-ness. Those are three really beautiful clues to your own red threads. And what the data show us is that in order to find ways of thriving in all the different domains of your life, by the way, but, but particularly at work, you want to thrive at work, you don't need a red quilt. You do not need a red quilt. You don't need to find the perfect job. You need to find 20% red threads though, and the only person that could do it is you. And you study excellence in any role, any endeavor, and you find that these people, Lisa, they have taken, and I'll use this word advisedly, they've taken their loves seriously. They've taken their red threads seriously and woven them into contribution. So my hope with the book was to be able to go, there is a way for you to find that which you love every day. If you can change your relationship to your own day, well, then you can change your relationship to your own life. How? 
would you use love and the red threads to navigate your career, Marcus? Well, so people often ask about that, right? They'll go, well, I, you know what? My current job is just transactional. Mm. I sell my time and my talent. I get my money. So, you know, love at work? Nah, rubbish. First 10 years of your career, you just got to put in the effort. And you just get your money and you, you, you sell your time and you go home and you take the money and you buy things for people you love, including yourself. That's a terribly bad trade because love is like any force of nature. And any force of nature, when you dam it up, it creates a very powerful ongoing force against the damming. Whether we're talking electricity, whether we're talking wind, whether we're talking water, when you block up a force of nature, it becomes super destructive. Well, the same is true of love. Love has got to be expressed. So you go to work every day for 30, 40, 50 hours a week, and you don't express any of these red threads. You don't find them. No one cares about them. No one's helping you. No one's validating the particular red threads that you might find, or you've been forced into a loveless 30, 40, 50 hours a week. That will eat you up. That will psychologically destroy you. So anybody going through their career going, you know what? Love's a luxury. I'll work for the first 15, 20 years, I'll try to earn as much money as I can, and then I'll find something that I really love. Like, that's a terrible trade, just a terrible psychological trade, because not other, over and above anything else, the people that feel your emptiness are the people around you that supposedly you're doing it for. So, and not to get too woo-woo about it, but, but we are human beings, and we need to be able to derive positive energy from the activities that we do. Not all of them, but some of them. Otherwise, we feel like we're living a second-rate version of someone else's life. And that's no help to man or beast, right? So, so the way to think about a career intentionally is to think about it not as a ladder to climb. And we need to flip that so that we think of a career instead as what I would call a scavenger hunt. It's a scavenger hunt for love. A career is a scavenger hunt for love. What's the right job after university? There is no right job. Don't ever worry that you put the ladder up against the wrong wall. Well, I did four years of accounting. I've got to be an accountant. What a waste. No, life is long. So what all you need to do is, if you imagine yourself when you graduate from university, let's say, and you're looking at this jungle and you're trying to find the right path into the jungle, Instead, you've got to think about it as, wait a minute, there's no right path. Just walk into the jungle and try to find and identify what some of your red threads are. What are the activities that you love for no good reason other than you're you? What are they? Look for a few small signs. Look every day. A scavenger hunt for love is how the most successful people and the most psychologically nourished people think of their careers. It's a possibility of keep, you, you find a red thread in one role and you pull on it and you see where it leads and then you keep doing it again and again and again. And we end up weaving a role where other people look at us and go, he's so lucky. How did he find that job? It just seems to fit him so perfectly. And of course, it, that's the wrong verb. They didn't find it. They, they made it. They found a few red threads and they deliberately and sort of selfishly <laughs> wove them together into a job that seems to fit them so perfectly. Marcus, then how do we best become a love and work leader in our workplaces? Well, to your point, you began this interview by saying, you know, there's so many people that don't find any love in what they do. And that's because we do 
poo-poo the word love. Like there's no place, you know, work is just work. And there's a lot of people you can see coming out of the pandemic that have basically decided that work is not that important to me and that I should just think of it as a place to go get money. And, and you can see that in the quiet quitting movement. You can see it in the great resignation as it was anyway. You can see it in the conflicts that are existing right now between uh, workers and management in many different countries around the world and companies around the world. There's a lot of friction as, as people have come out of the pandemic and gone, work's not all that, you know? And you can see why, because there are a lot of companies that have basically seen people as, you know, we call it headcount, don't we? Resources, or even over here in the US, we call them FTEs, full-time equivalents, which really means salary. You're just, your 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 money, you're, we think of you as the amount of wage we have to, you're a full-time equivalent. You're not even a human. So the reality for a lot of people is that, is that there isn't much love at work. So what can you do? Well, you can't change everything. We can't boil the ocean. We can start to talk intelligently from a scientific standpoint about the connection between love and service, love and creativity, love and innovation, love and collaborate. Like you name anything that any CEO trots out as things they want in the company, collaboration, innovation, creativity, teamwork. Well, have any of those without love is impossible. It's all fakery. I mean, you can fire someone. I'm not saying that we ought to live in some fake world where there's not the realities of the capitalistic world we live in, but you can do things lovingly. You can do things with love in your heart for people. You can do things in a way that sees other humans as other humans. There's ways to do, there's ways to deal with change that are loving, and there's ways to deal with change that are exploitative or transactional. What can you do as a leader to push against that? Well, weirdly, there is a very specific ritual if you study the best leaders, yes, they are different. No question. They're all different in how they do what they do. But they do have the same ritual. And that ritual is built around the concept that what people really want at work more than anything else is attention. Humans do really well with attention. Frequent, light touch attention. Frequent, light touch attention. Doesn't have to be in person, by the way, interestingly. When we study the modality, uh, in-app, email, phone, in person, what's important is that it's frequent and individualized. So what that turns into is a ritual. The most effective leaders have a 15 minute, I'll call it 15 minutes, because sometimes it's shorter and sometimes longer, but it's once a week. You check in with each of your people individually, not as a team. But if you look at the ritual, it's a one-on-one -on -one ritual where the leader is going, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to check in with each of my people once a week. Just on, just about them. Just about them. It's not to check up on them. I don't need to check up on them. I'm not trying to micromanage. But they need attention. They need frequent attention because they're humans, not because they're weak or needy, but because they're humans. And what I'll do is I'll do a 15-minute conversation where I'll ask one sort of emotional question about last week and one practical question about next week, which turns into something like, what did you love or loathe about last week? And what are you working on this week? How can I help? And and if you think about doing that 52 times a year, and that's really what the best leaders do. And, and the best ones don't go, well, I'm too busy leading to do that. No, no, no. That is the leader. The check-in is the leading bit. And what you're really doing as a leader is you're going, you know what, whatever goals we set in the beginning of the year are going to be irrelevant by about the third week of the year because things change so quickly. So how can I deal with the frequency of change? Well, I better deal with that through frequent attention. That's the, only way to, that's the only way to deal with frequent change is to, do, is to bring frequent attention to it, to the human. And so every week, 
what did you love about last week? Or what did you get a kick out of last week? Or where were you at your best last week? And then what are you working on this week? The best leaders do that 52 times a year, 52 little sprints. Boy, you, you get good at that. You find your way of doing that. And you'll have brought to each of the people on your team loving, demanding, I'm sure, challenging, but loving attention to that human and how they can turn what they love into contribution, which really is what the best leaders do. There are certain rituals that many organizations have, like cascading goals, performance ratings, performance feedback. What would you say are some of the limitations around these? The performance review, the once a year or twice a year performance review is a complete waste of time because performance gets improved based upon the specificity or or the detail of what that particular person is working on right now. If you wait six months or a year to talk to the person in detail about what they should be working on, what they should tweak or adjust or course correct, both humans, they're both humans, the manager and the person being reviewed, they're humans. And we all suffer from the recency effect as humans. We can't remember the vividness of what we were doing two weeks ago. And so in the, in the performance review, it all becomes this, this horrible recency driven, but also vague, you know, well, you should improve your strategic thinking. Well, what does the heck does that mean? Um, so performance reviews, first, that, that big problem is the infrequency of them. Um, the second problem is the, is the ratings, performance ratings. Um, we have learned a lot about what humans are capable of in terms of rating other humans. We've learned a lot in the last 25 years. And the biggest takeaway is this. Humans are horribly unreliable raters of other humans. I cannot hold a concept in my head like, um, oh, I don't know, self-discipline or customer focus or growth orientation. I can't hold that in my head, Lisa, and then rate you on it. Even if you give me a detailed description of the behaviors that, that would be tied to a five or a one on a one to five scale, even if you do that, it turns out that when I rate you on, let's say, customer focus and put a number to it, what I'm actually rating is my own idiosyncratic version of customer focus. And we know that because when I then rate someone else, not you, Lisa, let's call him Brian. When I rate Brian on customer focus, presumably my numbers should move because I'm now looking at a different human. I'm not looking at Lisa, I'm looking at Brian. But when I then rate Brian, it turns out my rating of Brian looks a lot like my rating of you. It moves with me. My rating moves with me, which means my rating of you reflects me, not you. And this isn't a function of race or gender or age bias. It's almost a function of me not even seeing you. I've got an idiosyncratic pattern. It's actually called the idiosyncratic rater effect. And it means that all performance ratings at work, we then, we assume their ratings that rate the person being rated, but they don't reflect the person being rated. All performance ratings reflect the person doing the rating, which is so weird because we end up paying or promoting or firing or giving more resources or less resources to the person being rated as though the managers are an accurate rater of the person being rated, and they aren't. And no human can get through this. It's not like that we can train that out of you. We, we can give you 
diversity training, we can give you implicit bias training, and that's good, and we should do that. But that doesn't remove the idiosyncratic rater effect, which basically means that all performance ratings are measuring the exact opposite of what we say they are. So that's a huge problem, and that's also, in the end, why feedback is so damaging. If you want somebody to grow, don't give them feedback as though you have the answer to their growth. No, you don't. You have the answer to yours, but what you can bring to some other human is attention and space. And then they can learn to make their own choices and then react to and learn from those choices. Thank you so much, Marcus. It's my pleasure. That was Marcus Buckingham. His book, Love and Work, is out now through Harvard Business Review Press. We made this episode on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Thanks to our producer, Rachel Bongiorno, and sound engineer, Tim James. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.